MSW Media. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein, and this is Spy Talk. Shortly after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and Pentagon, the CIA's Directorate of Intelligence, the agency's analytical wing, created a red cell, an elite group of analysts tasked with thinking outside the box on a number of issues facing the U.S. One of those was dedicated to the challenge of a rapidly modernizing China. Recently, two former senior CIA officers imagined what a red cell project on China would look like if it were constructed today. They came up with a futuristic scenario set some 20 years down the road in 2041 when China had become, quote, the preeminent global power having eclipsed the United States. A time when Beijing is busily changing the U.S.-dominated international order established in the ashes of World War II to suit China's own needs. This fictional Red Cell's task was to explain how that happened. Here to discuss that with me today are two former CIA officers involved in that project. One is Kristen Wood, who among many other top jobs was a presidential daily briefer and deputy chief of the CIA's Innovation and Technology Group at the Open Source Center. Also here today is Martin Peterson, who spent 33 years with the CIA, retiring in February 2005 as the agency's deputy executive director and acting executive director. But for our purposes today, the relevant part of Peterson's impressive resume is that he also ran the CIA's Office of East Asian Analysis and its Office of Asian Pacific Latin America Analysis before becoming associate deputy director of intelligence for strategic plans and programs. That's a mouthful, but the bottom line here today is that both these accomplished intelligence officers played important roles in the Red Cell Project on China. Kristen Wood and Marty Peterson, thanks so much for spending your time with me at Spy Talk. Gee, I am just fascinated by uh, your report on a Red Cell that was set up to analyze U.S.-China relations, let's put it that way. Um, uh, after 9-11. Talk to me about, um, why don't you start, Kristen, with, with how this red cell was established and why it was established? So, I mean, the, the red cell program itself, and uh, Marty is actually the, one of the creators of it. So I may, I may um, talk about it briefly and then turn it over to him because sure. he the underpinnings of it. But um, at the time, I was a presidential daily brief briefer when the red cell really came to be into being. And I think it was really important for the administration, the Bush administration to understand better. Um, the art of possibility really take experts and give them, um, leave them unbounded by the data in front of them to imagine um, outcomes that would give a framework for policymakers 
to think mm-hmm. through things that might be coming in terms of giving them options. So as a PDB briefer, that's how it was valuable to the principles that I briefed about. Marty, you know much more about the... Just you know, quickly, let me ask you, Kristen. So this was uh, in 2001, right after the 9-11 attacks. Was it hard to get the White House and the administration during the Bush administration, was it hard to get their attention to China, uh, to a, a rising China uh, right after... All there was, was terrorism 24-7. No, actually, um, and uh, a lot, because um, if you may recall, in the very beginning of the administration, um, a U.S. MP3 crashed, and um, it put the China-U.S. relationship right front and center in an unexpected way. And Marty, I mean, you lived that both yeah. as a substantive expert and as a leader at the time. And that was a crash of a U.S. aircraft on Hainan Island, was it, I believe? Yeah, it was, no. uh, 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 Chinese fighter clipped it, basically, and then uh, mm-hmm. they were forced to land at Hainan. In terms of the, Really a, yeah. a very tense moment there. Go ahead, Marty. Well, you're talking about the origins of, of, of the Red Cell. There, uh, the Red Cell wasn't formalized until after 9-11, but we had done something similar on the China beat uh, back when Clinton made his trip to China. And one of the things that I was running all of, I think I was running all of East Asia at that point and um, on the analytics side, I said, let's try and put together a piece on, on what uh, 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 the other fellow's briefing book looks like for your visit. <laughs> and so uh, I took two of my, my more imaginative analysts and, and they, they sat down and basically uh, did a, a paper for the uh, president of China, the Chinese premier, on what to expect from a, from a Clinton visit. And that went over pretty well. We tried it once or two, but it wasn't really in- institutionalized. Well, tell me a little bit. Of, tell me a little bit about that, if you could, Marty. Um, so you envision the idea. This is a really interesting idea. You envisualize. Well, what does the national security advisor to the president of China uh, say uh, when Clinton's on his way? Well, like any any presidential visit and, and or senior official visit, as Christian can tell you. The intelligence community does a lot of work ahead of time about here are your talking points, here's what you can expect them to bring up, here's where we are, mm-hmm. and, everything. and so my idea was, well, let's let's just go through the looking glass or whatever, and I love it, and, and use the same approach on what his maybe look like. Now we had no idea, truthfully, on how the Chinese system worked these things or whether a briefing book. Uh, would even uh, exist, I mean, what kind of papers or support they had. But the idea, again, was to help help the president think about, okay, where is this guy across the table coming from? And what can I reasonably expect them to raise in terms of topics and the kinds of points that they would want to make? I think in mm-hmm. particular, you know, Taiwan always comes up, trade issues were always coming up, and that sort of thing. So, So that's what we did. Now, after 9-11, it was George Tenet that really institutionalized the Red Cell. He had seen some of this other work. And what he wanted was a small group of analysts that could think, to use a hackney term, outside the box. And the idea, mm-hmm. again, was not just China, but at that point, it was really about uh, Al-Qaeda and, and, and whatnot. So a lot of the initial uh, Red Cell work after 9-11 was about what's going on in the minds of a bin Laden 
or that's right or, or, or what what might a next attack look like and mm-hmm. you know we had the that period i mean we had we had the shoe bomber we had of course 911 we had the mysterious anthrax attack that no one knew really where that was coming from and so there was a lot of things okay uh, let's Let's think more broadly about yeah. where we are. Listeners, listeners who weren't around at that time or weren't adults at that time, it's really hard to impart uh, the panic that was in the air after 9-11. Another attack is coming. Um, maybe uh, the great swath of Americans weren't uh, alarmed about that, but certainly inside the national security community, it's like they're going to come again. And and in, they did in these small uh, ways, a, a so-called shoe bomber in the airplane <laughs> set his shoes on fire. I think he intercepted a couple of people trying to come across the border from Canada or something as well. Right. And there was a big plot broken up in, in the UK. Um, yep. And there were other things. Anyway, let's get on to China uh, and the red cell on China. That's great. Um, so uh, Marty and I have done a number of um, pieces together and lots of projects since both um, leaving the agency. And so this particular piece was really born out of, you know, 20 years from now, if a president was looking back to say, how did the United States become number two in terms of world global um, power and influence? And um, the piece is imagining that the newly elected president is turning to CIA to ask that question. And so um, that is the premise of the red cell that we wrote on on China. Was it was your, your starting point? Your, did you did you uh, purposefully start with a doom and gloom scenario that China had inevitably overtaken America and the global stage? Uh, it was pre, it had become, as you put it, the preeminent global uh, power. Uh, that was your uh, assumption? And why was it? Well, so I think um, we, we, at least speaking for myself, wanted to go to that point to say, okay, let's imagine that, you know, from our perspective, the worst has happened. Um, and then what would that, what would the path to that outcome yeah. look like? And we weren't trying to imagine what, what we really think it would be or what analysts now would say what we really think it'll be. But we're saying, okay, if it goes this far that we're clearly recognized as number two, backtrack to how that came to be. Was your assumption, uh, Martin, let me ask you this, was was one of the assumptions of the Red Cell, that, uh, or George Tennant, let's say, did George Tennant think, boy, we've got to wake up people to this rising China threats. Let's do this, ex- this, this uh, Red Cell exercise to wake people up. Was that part of the purpose of doing this? Well, I think, uh, first of all, the Red Cell just wasn't about China. I mean, really, when it when it started under, under George, it was more focused on terrorism. But then it, it quickly broadened into other topics. So there were Red Cells done on China. There were Red Cells done on Russia. A lot mm-hmm. of it was terrorism related. So it was on Iran and, and this sort of thing. The idea was to try and help policymakers think more broadly about the forces that are at work out there and how they might evolve. And and what's different about the red cell that Kristen and I did is that, you know, this is 20 years out. Most of the red cells that were done immediately after 9-11 were, this is about now or, or next week or, 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 or next month. 
So it's had a more intense and immediate policy focus. Um, mm-hmm. We were, it was Kristen's idea. I said, okay, it's, 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 it's 2041. Uh, things have gone poorly from the U.S. global strategic point of view. How did that happen? And part of the value of the piece, I think, is it's, it's not predictive. We say that at the end. We say at the end, this is a very dark view because this is where we got, there's a lot of ways it could go differently. But what the piece does do, if you go through there, as we did with the U.S. and China, politically, globally, economically, uh, and whatnot, there's some signposts there. Sure. And, and if, you, if you see these sorts of things happening, um, then that makes the scenario that we, the very dark scenario that we painted, uh, more likely. doesn't make it most likely necessarily, but, but it's, it's a way to get, I would hope, get people thinking about, gee, maybe we better think about the fact that uh, uh, we seem to be so focused inwardly and we don't seem to have a grand strategy or view for international relations how mm-hmm. the rest of the world might react to that. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, uh, I don't know if you were building on the work of others who say that there in, 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 the, in the waves of history over centuries, there are rising powers that challenge, you know, Sparta taking on Athens and so on. Uh, it's inevitable that rising powers will conflict with uh, the uh, establishment or the hegemonic power. Um What's interesting to me is I didn't see in your description of the red cell um, predictions any military clash with China. Do you do you think that the the Chinese rise was uh, was uh, accomplished without a military clash with the United States? I think the way we laid it out, it could be, and and that in some ways to me is more frightening than predicting a clash over, over Taiwan or, or the South China Sea. You know, the, 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 the line for me in there, the, the one that is, is that all the signs were there. And, and what we have on the part of the United States is a failure of will to address them. Hmm. You know, and, and a lot's got to go right for China if this were to come about too. <laughs> I was going to move on to that. I mean, your, your assumption of the, you know, this inevitable Chinese rise seemed to, to me, uh, uh, and I'm sure you've got footnotes to uh, contradict what I'm about to say. It seems, you know, I mean, China's got lots of problems of its yeah. own, including its own form of government, its autocracy, right. which uh, if we look at history invites coup d'etats and rivalries and corruption. And we're seeing a lot of that now. So do you, do you still hold to the premise that China's rise is kind of inevitable? I, no, I don't those are my words, not yours. No, no, I don't, I don't hold to that premise at all. And, you know, the first thing that we say in the, uh, in the red cell is they've got to manage a successful uh, transition from Xi to whoever follows on. They've got to deal with their economic problems. They've got to deal with a, uh, 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 the social tensions. Uh, and so they've got a lot on their plate that they have to have to, have to deal with. And, uh, uh, you know, their ability to do that is unproven. Let's put it down. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Go ahead, Chris. Well, yeah. And Jeff, so one of the things I loved about the Red Cell concept was it gives people permission to not be caught up in what is the most likely scenario. 
right? And I think there's great value in um, mentally playing with, you know, a, an extreme outcome because it lets you, okay, if, if you're focusing on this is what happened, how would you get there? And to Marty's earlier point, wow, this could be a huge, this point could be a huge trigger or this is something that, okay, we need to watch what is happening with President Xi in succession, but wow, if this goes right, here's where it could go. So I think it lets us separate from whatever the facts and the data are right now, or maybe what our worldview is right now, and play with outcomes that uh, it's a framework for that, that really there aren't too many places that are um written products that allow someone to do that. And so it's permission to explore um, what we might otherwise not be able to talk about because there's no source that that says it. And so for this piece, I mean, I really, to me, if I think about Sun Tzu and the art of war, that's, we're living that. And yeah. it's not even like an analytic statement because it's so obvious, right? That's right. But if things go perfectly for them, you could see an outcome like this. You could see an outcome like this that, also um, does not include a military clash. In fact, that's the yeah. goal, right? Mm -hmm. um, to win without war. Right. And and to kind of build on that, the, the one point we haven't touched on is a lot of the future depends on the perception of others. And, and if traditional U.S. allies in Asia and Europe begin to have doubts about U.S. will or willingness or capabilities to play the leadership role that we have since the end of World War II, then they're going to look for their own paths. And, and, uh, uh, and that in itself will lead to some decline in U.S. influence of power. It will also encourage the bad guys like Russia and Iran and, and uh, uh, North Korea and possibly China to push the envelope if they think there's not going to be much of a pushback. So a perception of weakness uh, is, is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. Indeed, we're all already seeing signs of wobbly knees uh, in Europe. I read late last night, I read a dispatch. I think it was Axios reporting from Brussels, an EU minister uh, saying Europe has to develop its own nuclear uh, control uh, and um, uh, uh, attack policy because with Trump coming in, uh, you can't depend on U.S. leadership to confront Russia. And there's a rising threat from Russia, military threat from Russia. We have to um, find a leader, uh, find some combined leadership in between France and Germany and the U.K. to take on the Russians independently. Well, so we're already seeing that in Europe. It's not just Trump. I think both parties were seeing a tendency to turn inward. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to call it isolationism or neo-isolationism, but there's just less there's less thinking strategically about the world that we're in and, and where we need to be. One of the things that concerns me at the moment, for instance, because we know the Chinese go to school on U.S. actions, and they went to school on Russia, Ukraine, and they went to school on a lot of uh, stuff that we did in Afghanistan, that sort of thing. They're looking at our response right now to the Houthis and the attacks on shipping in international waters in the Red Sea, and probably beginning to think, 
or ask the question, and the long way from answering it is, what does that mean for the U.S. ability to defend the Taiwan Straits? Mm-hmm. Sure. We're sending signals now to them by our actions that either will have a positive impact on their thinking, on their ability to push more aggressive behavior in the Straits or not. Yeah. I just thought I'd bring up here. Uh, I was in China in 2015 on a journalistic junket with other reporters and uh, we went around and, you know, we were taken to the foreign ministry and uh, we met with uh, former senior retired uh, Chinese foreign policy and military officials and so on, including this uh, woman who had been a general in the PLA. Look. Um, and in one form or another, every one of them would bring out a map or spin the globe and say, you know, here we are, and here you are way over there. What are you doing with your Navy right off our coast? If yeah. we sailed the, our ships down the Santa Barbara Channel, you'd be, you'd be pretty alarmed, and you guys do that every day. So you're, and, and, and a subtext was, you know, you had your boot on our neck for 200 years, but that's over. <laughs> yeah, that's done. Uh, and we want you out of out of here because it's not yours. Um, so that's driving Chinese thinking. Let me ask you, uh, Kristen, uh, you were a presidential briefer. You briefed President Bush, I guess. No, it was um, Vice President Cheney and his national security advisor, Scooter Libby. So when China came up, did you feel that you wasn't if you would grade it one to 10, 10 being the best, how good do you think was our insight into Chinese, into the Chinese leadership? So I think it came up in the PDB sessions, really depended upon what was happening in the world at the moment. Um, obviously with um, the MP3 um, crash, wildly, wildly um, important, risky, high stakes time in terms of how you negotiate that kind of a situation when it's actually not planned by by either nation, right? There's all these things that we worry about and we plan for big uh, muscle movements of things that could happen. And this is, I mean, an accident uh, caused by, you know, a Chinese aircraft. But um, the analysis and the work that was done both operationally and analytically at the time was superb. And I think this is where you have that advantage of people like Marty and the people he brought in and mentored for decades of understanding China's mindset, um, how they would view the situation and to help our leaders uh, find a way to extract the crew and um, to close the situation without it actually getting worse. Because as you know, there are all these things that are triggers that end up in unexpectedly bad yeah. places. That's the thing that I think we all worry about is that uh, there's going to be some accident like the one you described where a U.S. plane was downed, uh, had to land in, in high, on Hainan Island and the crew was kept for a while and the plane was searched and so on. Yep. That one of these incidents will will uh, ignite the hawks on both sides. And that's another issue, isn't it? The Chinese hawks and the American hawks kind of seem to be itching for a fight. We have to take a quick break. When we get back, Marty, can you talk about the administration's response to that incident? Okay, we're back. Well, one of the things that we were able to do in that crisis, and, and because the... Uh, that was leading by, by China Group at the time, 
Dennis Wilder, who went on to be on the NSC for Bush and is mm -hmm. a uh, expert on China, was able to stress to the administration the need for patience while the Chinese worked through where they were, not to, we argued there was, wasn't a really good idea to increase military tensions at that point, and that we had to find a way diplomatically to get out of this. And we were able, and the administration taking that advice was able to go to work and craft some language that, that looked like enough of apologies, which is what the Chinese wanted to satisfy them without compromising the U.S. or actually being an apology on, 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 on our part. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think the intelligence community had very much in, 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 uh, in abundance at that point was a deep cultural understanding of China and the politics and how it worked and what was important to them and how they saw the world. We did not, and I recall, know what was going on in the back room where they're sitting around thrashing this out any more than they knew what was going on uh, in the West Wing of the White House uh, down in the skiff. But we had an appreciation of how the decision would make, how they would be made. We had a good appreciation of what the priority was, both domestically for the Chinese and internationally. And that sort of expertise and depth of understanding is critical. Now, it's a hobby horse I ride. You might want to edit this out later. No, 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 Marty. I, I am in total uh, agreement with uh, you. What, you know, I, I, I did my graduate work on, on China, and I studied uh, pre-revolutionary movements in 19th century China. And I would say that you can't understand what the Chinese leadership is up to today unless you understand centuries of Chinese history. Yeah, and the, the, the graduate programs that you went through and I went through are, uh, don't exist in that same way in most universities now. The old regional studies program, you know, where you would uh, you would come up with a good understanding of the culture, the history, the literature, and the rest of it. Uh, now it's uh, it's about uh, international terrorism, and you read a couple books on the Middle East or something on Iraq, but you're not really a Middle East expert when you come out of that. Mm -hmm. uh, I, let me pose this question to to either of you. Um, do you uh, what role look, CIA is the premier mm -hmm. strategic intelligence organization of the U.S. sprawling U.S. intelligence community? Uh, what role does CIA have to play in a general sense with uh, our within our rivalry? Let's put it that way with China, uh, obviously. Task number one is to collect intelligence, to find out what's going on inside China as best as we can understand it. But, you know, there are influence operations. There are um, uh, uh, Bill Burns uh, is off today uh, to, back to the Middle East to to uh, pursue uh, negotiations with uh, Palestinians. Uh, George Tennant did this with a PLO back in the day. Um, does CIA have a role beyond spying to put a what, sharp yeah, point like, on it. <laughs> like, uh, Kristen handled this one too in just a moment because she was in the room with these people more than I was. Look, our job, as I saw it, our job at CIA, particularly on, on the analytic side, was to make our guys smarter than their guy. Whether that was across a, a, a coffee table, a, a conference table, or, or a battlefield. And you do that not only by collecting information, 
a lot of which is open source. And it was very important for us as well, uh, not just the secrets, but helping our guy understand the other fellow. And I think part of the job, I would argue the main part of the job for an intelligence analyst is to help our guy understand how the other guy sees his options, what his tolerance for risk is, what his priorities are, and the rest of it. And then that goes into the mix. But I will tell you that intelligence analysis and intelligence in general is just one input into any foreign policy decision. And a major mm. one, I think I've come to believe the most important input into any foreign policy decision is the same in Tehran as it is in Washington as it is in, in, in Moscow. And that's how does it play in domestic politics? The most important decision in many cases, the most Im important input into a decision is how it's going to play in domestic politics, because I've got to stay mm -hmm. in power. And if you take a look at the decisions that uh, uh, President uh, Obama made with regard to red lines in Syria and that sort of thing, the one reason he didn't go down that road, I would argue, is because he knew that the Americans weren't open for yet another boots on the ground adventure mm -hmm. uh, uh, in that part of the world. And uh, mm -hmm. um, if you're um, if you're Putin, I'm sure you're looking over your shoulder, worrying about how things are, and uh, and Chinese have got their issues as well too. So it gets pretty complex pretty quickly. Kristen, you you've been in these debates. So. You say, well, let me let me pose this question to you, Kristen. You say you're you wrote you guys wrote you both wrote that uh, your red cell study was well received. Um, throughout the administration, uh, what was the? Give us a sense of that. Like you sent it over to the Pentagon, for example. What happened there? Did they like it? So I think the one of the um, pieces of magic of a red cell is that when anyone receives it, they know this isn't the CIA saying this is the way that it is. So I don't have to look at it if I'm at DIA or FBI or you know elsewhere and say. Well, we think differently or, you know, we've got to get a message that, no, 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 it's not this way. It's just, it's another way. What it does is give all leaders that just an opportunity to say, wow, okay, if this is what the future looks like, or if this is, uh, if I say, yes, this is what's happened. Do I, would I need to do something different? Would I need to think differently? Um, what resources would I need to bring to bear? What questions have I not asked? to determine if this is the path we're on. And so it's actually, um, I always found a refreshing way to get out of the day-to-day, -day, this is what we're doing, this is where, you know, the meetings are coming up, these are the things we have to pr prepare for, and kind of uh, strategically come higher in the clouds, maybe at a 30,000-foot level and say, okay, if this is an option, what would I need to do to prepare for it? And if I didn't like the outcome, that future outcome, prevent it. Or what do I need to go learn about that I maybe haven't sent collectors out to learn about yet? And so I, I think it was always well received because it's one of the very few times, um, especially in your in these really high level government positions, that you have permission, kind of at a responsibility, to scope up to that thirty thousand foot level and spend a little time there. Policymakers, senior officials, in particular, are. One of the, the most precious thing in Washington is time. They haven't got time to do anything other than deal with what's on their plate immediately and maybe a day down the way. And so one of the benefits, as Christian was saying, of the red cell, it gives them an opportunity 
in the 10 minutes it takes them to read that, to step back and think a little more broadly. You know, I mean, uh, the, the president loves them, uh, the, the vice president loves them, all that sort of thing. But I think a lot of our, our, our main audience for, for this, people found it really useful, were the national security advisors and the assistant national security advisors and, and their staffs who are dealing with the crisis of the moment. And here's an opportunity to kind of sit back and think, okay, what else may be happening down the road that we're going to have to deal with, you know, tomorrow, six months from now or, or a year from now? Well, if I could just, just add yeah. um, the concept of time. I don't know that many um, of your listeners would know what that really means. So, for example, the vice president's schedule, it was often in 30-second increments over a 14-hour day. So from, you know, 11.01 to 11.02, walk to this building. 11.02 to 11.05, greet Girl Scouts. Make sure you say this to this person, this person. 11.05 to 11.05.45, walk here. And so can you imagine being that scripted all day long on vastly important issues that were related to economic security, national security, mm-hmm. um, maybe fundraising if you're an election cycle, relationship building with other nations? And it's that way all day, every day, Saturday and Sunday as well. And was, so, that, was that particular to Cheney to have 30-second no, no. intervals? It's all of them. And, schedule, really and that this. schedule will change several times a day. How can anyone take time to think straight for, for 10 minutes uh, uh, over, the, over the horizon? So, so that's actually the point, right, is um, I have great empathy for um, the challenge that is being any high-level uh, official in any of our institutions, but particularly at the administration level, because this is the life, right? This is the way that it is. And... Um, the things that smack you in the face aren't because anyone's not smart or experienced. It's because you're so occupied with, I've got 30 seconds here. I've got two minutes here. I've got five minutes to get here to here. That putting a piece in front of them that lets them have that 30,000 foot moment, maybe the only one they get until the next red cell comes out, unless that they have programmed that, it, that into your, their days. And so um, I think there's a lot of indictment that can happen um, with, whatever party's in power, whatever president is in power of how could they not see it? How could, how could we miss it? And if you think about time that way, it's maybe a little bit easier to understand why um, it's, you get caught up in all of that on a day-to-day basis. Well, I have to bring this up because you were briefing Cheney and you're talking about 30 second time intervals. I mean, how they decided that attacking Iraq in response to 9-11 is still a mystery to me. Um, uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to accept any of the most nefarious explanations for that um, because it's still, it's such to me and to many, a stupid, incredibly stupid and tragic decision that we're living with now. Um, so the idea that you could get, you know, 10 minutes for anyone to think seriously about anything and discard their biases, um, their ideological or financial or whatever biases they have, uh, it, it's quite a challenge. And, and, and I guess I'll just have to conclude this by saying that we're, uh, we're all lucky to have thoughtful officials at CIA like you guys. So 
hate to use a hackneyed phrase here, but thank you for your service. I really appreciate it. I would Thanks rec- for your time today. I would uh, recommend uh, uh, Robert Draper's book, uh, uh, To Start a War. It gives you the intelligence and the policy battles uh, that uh, that led to Iraq. It's quite good. Yeah. Well, um, let's hope for the best when it comes to U.S.-China. That's a, yeah. that's a big game right there. It, uh, well, <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of fabulous people on the mission, um, both in the um, government and the private sector. Who, I mean, it's not good for anybody, right, for there to be a poor outcome between the U.S. and China. And so, um, you know, we're really just, I mean, I think Marty and I both feel the way that we're just really um, proud of the work that gets done there. And, um, you know, we have the advantage of not having those kind of days anymore. Yep. And so we have a little more time to think about uh, doing things like like this Red Cell. So it was just really, I think we both really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your audience today. And, uh, you know, perhaps again in the future. I know you and, Char- uh, you and Marty have some deep, deep uh, history on China that uh, you could probably unpack over lots and lots of hours or maybe an adult cocktail sometime. <laughs> An old beverage. I'm looking forward to that. And let's hope that cool heads prevail on U.S.-China relations and we don't find ourselves in a, a shooting war. Um, Marty Peterson and Kristen Wood, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. It was very, very nice. I enjoyed it. And that's it for this week's Spy Talk. Be sure to check out our complete podcast archive on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you haven't already, do check out the spytalk.co news site on Substack, where we offer a steady diet of scoops and original analyses on the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, and military operations. Just Google SpyTalk or, hey, use AI, and you'll quickly find your way there. This edition of the SpyTalk podcast was smoothly produced, as always, by Kanai and edited by Molly Hawkey for MSW Media. Oh, and that music you've been hearing, that's from The Last Emperor, the epic 1987 cinematic drama about the life of Pu Yi, China's last reigning royal. He was dethroned first by the Japanese and then Mao Zedong's communist revolutionaries. It's a reminder that nothing's permanent in the world except, well, change. So have a great week. I'm Jeff Stein for Spy Talk. See you around. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.